search is a high intent channel. When people go to a search engine, they have they are they are the hunters. They're looking for something. In social, they're often not looking. They want to chat. You're having to interject politely, or just as an aside, like you're tapping them on the people on the shoulder, saying, "Oh, what do you think of this?" Blah blah blah. And actually, if you oversell, people get annoyed at you and start to unlike you and so forth. But the point is, the intent is high with search. For me, take it to analogy of football. So search and, and social are members of the same football team. Search, direct, or direct is obviously a big driver of traffic, the bigger the brand grows. But that goal by direct was set up by lots of channels working together. Social is the, is the wing, is running up and down the side, yeah? Tapping people on the shoulder passing the ball around and finally organic is like passing it forward passing it forward and direct if you've built a brand is like the goal scorer or organic is the goal scorer social doesn't score that many goals but if it wasn't there you'd really miss it off the team yeah This week's podcast, I sit down with Dawn Anderson. Dawn's been in the SEO industry for the past 13 years or so. She's the founder and managing director of Bertie, a Manchester-based digital marketing agency. She also speaks at conferences all around the world. She's worked with some really cool brands and she also lectures at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, she also actually lectured me while I was at university a few years ago. In the podcast, we get through a lot. There's loads of topics that we cover. Uh, we talk about voice search, information retrieval, uh, the marketing industry as a whole, how COVID-19 has affected online behavior, that kind of thing. So there's a lot and you should stick around to the end. And if you haven't already, then press the subscribe button below. So Dawn, how are you doing? I'm good. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'll be looking forward to Getting out of the door after after being locked down for so long, yeah. So yeah, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I mean, I'm guess just like waiting for lockdown to be over, like the, like everyone else. But like, you know, I'm lucky to be able to come to the office. Still, it's just five minutes from where I live, so like, I'm lucky to be able to just come in and kind of, you know, have have some space and, and get get out of the house a little bit, even if it's for five minutes driving down the road. So <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, I'm very envious. No, I've I I don't think I've been anywhere for well weeks on end now but I will say one thing during the lockdown I've managed to get absolutely loads of things done but um, yeah, I've, yeah. you know things that I've planned to do for years and um, just never got round to so <laughs> I, I started a project 13 years ago 13 years oh, wow. ago and I've been chipping away it bit by bit over the years and um, and, the, and this past two three months I've been able to uh, as well as obviously juggling client work and various other things, but I've been able to really concentrate on it, and it's it's made a huge difference. So yeah, so, yeah. More, I mean, news it's, soon. more news on that soon, actually. Not today. Oh, brilliant! Is yeah. it is it a, is it a writing project or is it um, something else? No, it's Somewhere. a website. It's 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 a. It's oh, okay. No, it's not. It's an application. It's an actual oh. application. So. It's well, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, well, quite a few people do know about it already. They've known me for years. But I finally, it's been like, uh, you know, you get people that are building a boat for like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> they just chip away at it. 
Wow. Yeah, like the cathedral in Barcelona that stars have been finished 30 years like or however long later. <laughs> well, this project kind of feels like that cathedral in Barcelona, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, just a few weeks left and then, uh, yeah, I'm going to really start marketing it then. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean... I mean, I mean, like, I think it's marketers' fault that people don't leave the house as much because of, you know, how easy it is to buy from Amazon and how easy it is to, you know, yeah. you know, online shop and things like that. So, um, yeah. So, well, anyway. To be fair, I'm probably, um, I, I'm hoping to never have to go into an actual supermarket again. I've kind of got <laughs> a habit now of ordering all my fresh fruits and vegetables from uh from a food, you know, like a, a, a fresh fruit produce company that's yeah. quite a few quite a few small food companies have done amazingly well, ironically, during during COVID. And uh, a lot of them have been drag kicking and screaming into the e-commerce world. Um, I noticed that this company that that I buy my stuff off, uh, my fruit and veg and whatnot, over the weeks they started adding more products on. It was fruit, veg, then it was bread, then they were adding cheese, and then all of a sudden they had any proper e-commerce site appeared. And, yeah. uh, I mean, they're like, they must be 100 years old as a company. But yeah. all of a sudden, the first week you had to ring up, it was like, send us a message through Facebook and ring up. Then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we've got a website. Then the next thing, they're sending you marketing emails, like, yeah. oh, my God. So... Even though COVID has been horrific in many ways, it has actually had an impact on businesses. And I think a lot of businesses that are more traditional have suddenly had to embrace e-commerce and digital to survive, you know, and all the things like social platforms have to offer. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the same for us. Like, um very early in COVID, so like the first couple of weeks of COVID, um, we had a couple of clients pour, so like the hospitality and travel industry, yeah. which is which I is obviously understandable. Yeah. Absolutely the same, yeah. Fashion. One of mine is a luxury fashion uh, brand, you know, that sells really high-end dresses. And yeah. another one is uh, Scotland's oldest shoe shop. And, wow. you know... They're in industries that had to had to just pause because they were impacted, you know, significantly. So yeah, I, yeah. I mean, like, um, like it, it, it's funny because those those industries paused, but then for, for me, like, local, um, a couple of local businesses came in, and then they kind of needed to go online almost instantly. So they needed a website because um, they were key workers. So, for example, one was like a, an emergency call out um, company. So they needed to come online for the first time. And it's Know, really um you know obviously it's really important to get to get online if you aren't already so like for you like what are some um reservations that people have coming online is it just because people think that they've been so fine with it for such a long time like i'm sure the shoe company they kind of thought you know word of mouth's been working for like past 100 years so what's the main well, reservations to think well, so far yeah I mean, obviously, I can't talk too much about clients, but to be fair, yeah, yeah, they, are, they are very successful online already. But, mm -hmm. but you know, this, a lot of brands, even though they are online, they are still impacted because they've got shops, offline shops, and particularly in fashion, the high street really has just taken an absolute walloping during, during this period. I mean, look at Primark. <laughs> oh my Primark. days, Primark! Oh wow, Primark! Wow. 
Did never ever bother to have an e-commerce offering ever. No. Didn't realise it's getting. But to be fair, I mean, did you see the article that said um, they hadn't haven't sold a single thing? And obviously, the likes of Quiz and um, I don't know. I mean, there's been a massive shakeup because I believe Quiz Quiz has put his shops into administration because it's gone. It's had everything's just gone online. I think I think a lot of them have just realised that. Ultimately, it's not worth opening up the shops again when they can drive so much traffic to their websites. And I know that, for instance, Misguided have just bought, I think it's, or they've just gone in, swooped in to take Oasis and Warehouse, who've been impacted by COVID. So the whole fashion industry has massively been impacted by this whole thing. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So they. I think, I think, I think like, it's, it's a big um opportunity for acquisitions in, in the space obviously because the bigger companies can buy the smaller companies that go go bust so for you know obviously the big players that they can capitalize on this time um but for okay. maybe some, yeah. some of the smaller retailers that maybe may have to go into administration you know maybe you know that, that's what happens well, so yeah absolutely I, th- I think um i mean obviously fast fashion in particular mm-hmm. really relies on that huge turnover of of product. Um, Primark, we are her example. I think they're going to do all right now. Apparently last week there was a three-hour <laughs> three hour queue <laughs> and people had tents in the outside oh, of Manchester. Tents, tents to queue. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, Primark, even though they said they're giving this kind of sob story about, hey, we've not sold a single thing, um, they are actually part of a bigger group that has one of the biggest uh, other brands within their group is a food company. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts. They'll have made an absolute fortune on the food side of things. And, um, yeah, and, and obviously just the fashion side has been impacted. But they reckon that this this dip in the economy is going to be almost like a boomerang. So it's just going to yeah, dip yeah. and then bounce back. Because the money is still there. It's still around. It's just redistribution if you like yeah 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 sure is there any reason well in, in your opinion why, why do you think uh, i know fast fashion it's is very um low margin you've got to kind of sell it quickly but do you think that's the main reason why primark haven't gone online so far oh do you know what i remember a few years ago when uh at the university one of the sweet one of the students in the digital marketing strategy course that i was lecturing they, they actually use Primark as one of their case studies. Oh, yeah. And they, they were digging into, you know, the reasons why. And I think Primark literally were like, no, our model is mass shops, you know. They, don't, they just have never shown any interest in it. <laughs> and funnily enough, I saw on Twitter that somebody had said, hey, Primark, you better get online, blah, blah. They've just got this model and it's hugely, hugely successful. It works. And um, they they just aren't interested at all. So you know, they'll. I think that they will. It's only three months. They'll they'll make it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's that's true. Um. So like, while we're on the topic of kind of like COVID and and, and recessions, etc. Um. Just like shifting on to a more more technical side of uh of, of SEO. So like. How, how do you think Google have handled COVID? I know there's a lot of 
misinformation, uh, fake news, um, just poor, poorly referenced information around the web. So in search results, et cetera, how do you think that Google have handled it? I think they did how, a really how they good job. It? Yeah, no, I think they did a good job with it. Obviously, when something first hits the news, I mean, we know that COVID was never, you know, nobody had heard of it six months ago. It's a new no. virus. So it's a query that nobody has ever heard of before. So, you know, we have the, the old Rank Brain and Google Bird and so forth, and I know we're going to come on to that a bit later. But queries, there's, a, there's an accumulation of data based on past queries and present queries. And obviously, as soon as you start to see things that have never been seen before, they have to work out, well, what does all this mean? What kind of query is it? I mean, what the hell is COVID? So obviously, very quickly, they'll have realised, oh, this is a health query, yeah. So I presume that we know that there's extra caution around your money or your life queries, which is to do with anything to do with health, legal, finance, that kind of thing. COVID sits very firmly in the health spectrum. And actually, there is a huge division inside Google called Google Health, yeah, and in different countries. For instance, uh, in America, health queries, I mean, they obviously matter here, but at least we have the NHS. In America, for instance, people have to pay a lot for if they don't have private, well, private medical care is expensive and so forth, the insurance. So a lot of people self-diagnose. So you well, can that's imagine. So dangerous. <laughs> oh, yeah, but if you can't afford to pay for healthcare, then mm. you know one in five queries. I was at a conference a few years ago, and the head of Google Health was speaking. One in five queries is a health-related query. Yeah, wow. that's a lot of queries. Yeah. In America or the the world? I think generally that was just generally. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't, I'm not sure whether it was America or globally, but anyway, it's a huge amount of queries. So obviously this really, really matters. So the trust and validity, because somebody takes bad advice from a search engine, then, you know, they have a moral responsibility to serve something that's trustworthy and truthful and with an element of cross-reference fact-checking. So there is this notion, uh, I know there's a lot of people talk about it in the SEO space, this is a layman's term. So... Um, it's not a term that search engineers are likely to refer to. It's a term that's been created to guide quality raters, Google's quality raters, to know what a trustworthy result is, particularly in the area of your money or your life queries, such as COVID, such as flu, any kind of pandemic, whatever, yeah. And that is EAT, expertise, authoritativeness and trustworthiness, yeah. So that will kick in. Those kind of measures will kind of kick in, really, around this this kind of time. So the quality raters will have looked at the kind of sites that represent, and it's really just, it's just a, if you like, it's, it's not a measure, it's not a metric, it's more like a standard of pool of types of sites, yeah, that are trustworthy, trustworthy, trusted sources on health and so forth. So those kind of sites will likely rise to the top when it comes to anything around health. You're talking WebMD and so forth, that kind of thing. 
But obviously, as the news built up around COVID, because obviously the news part, I mean, it's a universal, universal uh, query because obviously universal search kicks in because people want to look at pictures. For instance, there was this thing called COVID toes. Did you hear of COVID toes? No, no. (laughs) So, so So this thing popped popped up that seemed to be a symptom of coronavirus but in children and in healthy adults with a strong immune system where they ended up with this huge rash on their toes which literally was like a bonkers crazy like rash that drove them mad and it was itching so uh, I kind of had this thing in about February my toes were itching like mad and I was saying to my husband I can't understand why my toes are just absolutely insanely crazy so I sees it online, COVID toes, and then I hit her Dr. Hillary of Breakfast TV talking about COVID toes. Huh. So, so the first thing I do is like I go to Google COVID toes. Well, I don't want to. I read some news pieces about COVID toes, saying yes, it seems to be a symptom that doctors are saying that they're seeing a lot of. But at the same time, I was like, well, I actually want to see what it looks like because I want to see if my toes looked like that. So you're suddenly not, you're not just in general search, you're into image search then, yeah? yeah. Plus also people wanted to see what pictures of, how is it impacting the immune system, you know, medical pictures and so forth. And obviously the news, the number of times I typed into Google News, coronavirus vaccine, because it was like, oh, my God, when's this going to end type thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I think Google did overall a good job. Another time you saw the minute you type coronavirus in eventually, the whole page had the SOS alert, which was red. Everything's in red. They do that whenever there's like Ebola. But they do it in a territory. And, again, that's something that the Google health lady was talking about. It's, from what I understand, it's territorial, yeah. So if you type in in England or, I don't know, some country that's not impacted by Ebola, for instance, you type in, I've got a cold and a temperature, then it's not going to say Ebola. But if you're in an area where, you know, you, it could be a symptom of Ebola, high risk, it's more likely to show that kind of thing, yeah. So there is a regional impact but obviously, this is a global pandemic, so it's everywhere, yeah. So one of those unprecedented things, and I think overall they handled it well. The, the knowledge graph built up well over time, everything, pictures, the whole accumulation of data. And have you ever heard of this notion of um, where there's conflicts between data sources? You see a lot where there's an image comes in from one website on a knowledge panel and then text from another website. Oh, featured snippets is another one. Yeah, go on, explain. Yeah, so so say you type a query in as a featured snippet, and you'll see the image comes from one website, like Money Supermarket, but the actual text comes from another website, like Compare the Market. So it's databases, because knowledge graphs are built often with structured, lots of types of data. The knowledge base, yeah structured data, semi-structured data, and then obviously the text from the web, which is the blurb, yeah? Obviously, they're trying to tie together all these different types of very structured, semi-structured, and unstructured blurb. So occasionally there's a discord 
And obviously image search is a different thing altogether. So they're pulling in an image thinking, oh, that's about car insurance. But the, hey, this page is authoritative about car insurance as well. So I think, so that's just one example. And then what happens is that builds over time as more entity determination is worked out. And that's what's happened with coronavirus. So that's a very long way of saying, I think they did a good job, given that it's six months ago, it was never heard of. Now there's a huge amount of resources and data and they seem to be bubbling up to the surface, the trusted sources, and providing a good overview across universal search. Does that answer that? That was the, the best answer ever. That, that was an essay. That was really good. That was really in-depth. That's made me you know, understand it and hopefully the listeners understood it as well. So that's for websites and the knowledge graph, um, et cetera. But when it comes to... Uh, I don't know how to put this, but <laughs> tabloids such as the Daily Mail, etc. How how are Google able to kind of sieve out fact from fiction, um, specifically around the coronavirus? I know that obviously they've got a, you know the the they're seen as an authoritative figure um, around the web, um, presumably. But when it's something as serious uh, as coronavirus, how are they? Because when you type in coronavirus, there's tons of news articles that come yeah. up as well. Because like WebMDs, WebMDs yeah. obviously, um, you know, a trusted source, as, as, as you just explained. But things like the Daily Mail, you know, you can pay to have an article in there about about anything. You know, so how, how can you dis- distinguish a good yeah. news article from a bad one? Yeah, yeah. So it's very hard, ultimately. I mean, the, yeah. the point is, well, one thing I am doing, and we're going to again come on to this a bit later, is I see with algorithmic changes, sometimes these broad core algorithmic changes, I feel that there's a big truth a truth measure in there, yeah? So data yeah. and accuracy and so forth. And a lot of the papers that are in search are around how can we determine trust? Who are the trusted authors, yeah? Is this person an author that just has lots of inaccuracy and doesn't cite reputable sources, proper medical references, and uh, they don't cite peer-reviewed papers or peer-reviewed research and so forth? So I think Google and all the other search engines are becoming increasingly good at determining the quality authors who take who take uh, peer-reviewed research seriously and are able to, as writers, differentiate between good research, bad research, hearsay, lots of people who say, oh, I think, yeah. Um, you know, remember when you were at university, the first thing that, when, when I'm teaching uh, supervising master's students, the first thing that, that people say, and when I had this said to me when I started my master's, Nobody wants to know what you think unless you're a doctor uh, or a PhD and that subject matter because everybody thinks something, yeah? We're all biased, yeah? Where's your evidence, yeah? I think search engines are getting increasingly good at being able to understand, is this person an author who is citing third-party research well, yeah? First-party research, and are they referencing other authors who are experts in that field, yeah. So I think that there will be some kind of, 
there'll be some kind of graph structures and trust algorithms built up that will, will uh, work towards surfacing the truth more and more. But at the same time, it's very challenging um, because if there is new, say there's something new and exciting, like the other day, there was something that came out that said, hey, there's a really cheap drug that um, people can, that doctors can now use that seems to have an impact on preventing deaths as much from coronavirus when people get into a coma. And it costs like five pounds a dose and all this carry on. That turned out to be true. However, because the newness and freshness of story, the search engines, if they are building like a trust-based, well, this is a body of evidence. Um, so they look to the body of evidence. That kind of page would suffer because it's new, yeah. the new research. So new research will, and people that are coming out with controversial or opposing opinions potentially will fall foul to the fake news type algorithms that are in place. And I think also that they do some stuff with, I think they do some stuff with, almost like with social listening as well. Yep. You know, ultimately, the link graph goes for me well beyond web search. Information retrieval reaches into all the corners of the world, yeah. And there will be there will be nodules that stand out everywhere. Algorithms are everywhere, all around us, yeah. So trust stands out. Vagueness stands out. Everything, once you start to map it in a link graph, will stand out, depending on your your link pattern, you know, the measure. So people, you know the, you know the story of six degrees of separation? We're all connected within six degrees of each other, yeah? yeah. That's, that's a kind of form of link graph, yeah? So mm -hmm. these are everywhere, not just in search. They're in every connection that we have in the world, yeah? So mm -hmm. I think that they are very clever people at search engines, and they will be constantly build, working on algorithms to try to be objectively surfacing truth, but at the same time to avoid being censors because freedom of speech is also important. Yeah. So, you know, if you're a trash newspaper, eventually you, people on search engines will find you out. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's what people want to read sometimes, isn't it? You know, there's a lot, a lot of clickbait yeah. out there, but yeah. when it comes to life and death, that, that's... Exactly. Well, that's why they have these, your money or your life theories, and those kind of those kind of queries do are subject more to this whole notion of EAT, and um, they're under ex extra scrutiny because if somebody types in coronavirus and gets bad advice, doesn't bother to take you know ring up the doctor, they could die. So um, these are extra scrutiny. So you have to be extra, extra, extra authoritative. Yeah, on that subject. Yeah. Do, do you personally know if if kind of you know you know large publishers do, do they go through um, any any of this training to to kind of ensure that these sites reputable sources properly, or is it kind of are people kind of writing from just a, a, a general copy point of view rather than kind of writing an articles in, in a way like a university paper, for example? Is there any formal training in, in, in place well, for that? It certainly should have. I mean, for me, all 
all good journalists should sign others, and I think reputable journalists generally do. Yeah, reputable yeah. PRs generally do. I mean, I think there's a big crossover now between all of that, all of our industries. For instance, there's a lot of people in SEO claiming to be journalists, but they're really just not. <laughs> and there's an awful lot of people in SEO claiming to be PRs, but they're not. Yeah, but they're trying. But the point is, and I don't mean that in a degrading way, no. journalism is a field, an, an expert field. And writing for newspapers is, again, an expert field. There are notions such as the inverted pyramid. Yeah, there's a structure to a news piece. Google News, again, has a, has a criteria to be included. And um, you have to you have to pass that criteria to get into there, and um, there will be a there, there should be a minimum threshold of quality for news out there. Simple as that. And I don't mean when I say that about SEOs claiming to be PRs. There's a lot of PRs also claiming to be SEOs. So, and they're not. Yeah, our worlds are all merged, and we all think we can do a bit of everything. Yeah. But we probably can't that well, yeah. So, so I think the true PRs will rise to the surface again. Same thing, yeah. The true SEOs will rise to the surface. Same thing. The true journalists will, you know, twenty percent. You know the whole Pareto principle. There'll be twenty percent of people that are creating eighty percent of the quality stuff, and they will rise to the surface, yeah. Search engines will detect that, or they will increasingly get better at detecting that using things like machine learning and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think that there definitely needs to be proper training for newspapers. I think the quality newspapers do. Again, trust newspapers. Google will find you out. Yeah. Yeah. So, in other in other words, just always write articles thinking that a university lecturer is um, breathing by your neck. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to write. <laughs> you don't have to do citations in exactly the same way. You're not going to have to do, like, necessarily Harvard referencing all the way mm -hmm. through. Yeah. But you could just do a link, source, you know. Yeah. And good quality pieces, you know, I can see an SEO piece. They, they link to Wikipedia for everything because you think, oh, well, it's um, – what do they call it? Hubs and authorities algorithm. Fair enough, there is an element of hubs and authorities and kind of trusted seeds. But at the same time, the reason they're linking to Wikipedia is maybe because they don't they haven't actually taken the time to go and actually find the reputable sources in a field. Yeah. Like through Google Scholar. They haven't gone and actually researched to see who are the writers in this field, who are the authorities. Wikipedia is not an authority. In fact, do you remember? When you're at university, you get told if you link to Wikipedia, if you reference Wikipedia, that's an immediate down mark, yeah. Wikipedia is a starting point to go and find authorities, yeah. yeah. So SEOs tend to link to Wikipedia often or guest posters because they've not spent the time going and doing the research into who are the real authorities in that field, yeah. Mm -hmm. Same with journalists, then. Good journalists, good journalists will spend their time going, researching who are the real 
proper authorities, not just Wikipedia. Yeah, I mean, I think Wikipedia, you know, it, it, it's... It's good. Like a, a good starting point, yeah. A good starting point, yeah. I was, I was going to say, like, so, um, you know, if you just put a general topic in Wikipedia, in Google, Wikipedia is more likely than not to come up. So you go, you go in there when you find you start to explore a topic. So, for, say for example, you typed in SEO, and then all the different elements come up. You know, technical content, that kind of thing. And then within that, there'll be different elements you can break down. And then at the bottom, we got the citations of the best places to, to look. And then within that, uh, you can look around there. So, you know, it, 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 Wikipedia is a good place to start. But um, you know, if someone's writing a, a um, you know a, a journal piece or something, they could be at the same time, changing, um, changing Wikipedia because it's, it's crowd, um, crowdsourced oh, site, isn't it? Yeah, and actually, in many many countries, they have very few actual human editors there. Um, okay. So very few, um, particularly well, the non-English speaking countries, they have hardly any editors. So and obviously, people do take advantage of it. A couple of years ago, did you see that, um, I think it was that company with who does the jackets, to call the company that does jackets, mountain jackets, skiing jackets? Um, I can't remember, but anyway, they did a North huge... Face. Yeah, them. Oh. They were, um, yeah, they did a huge piece where they actually hijacked the Wikipedia page for mountain or something. And actually, Wikipedia were pretty upset because... These are volunteers, and I know that it doesn't make that it doesn't make hardly any money. Wikipedia, um, mm-hmm. it's not profit making, but it's a huge resource. It funds well; it actually contributes massively to the knowledge graph. It's the most crawled crawled um, resource on, on earth by search engines and in information retrieval. It's responsible. The English Wikipedia is responsible for fueling Google Bert in the first place. Because the English words were, were taught to Bert from the English Wikipedia. So people should respect it more. So it's Wikipedia is not an authority, it's a home of authorities, if you like. It's a home of every starting point of every topic in the world. But then you should go and explore further, look at the papers at the bottom. I mean, I go to Wikipedia every single day for one thing or another. Um, and actually, that's one thing that is actually very credible at the moment. A lot of these big updates, for me, it seems that people creating content, if it isn't reinforced by the likes of Wikipedia or trusted sources like that, ordnance survey data, like postcode data, then it's seen as less trustworthy. Yeah. So if you're doing location-based search, yet you're claiming that your post town is not not the same as one of the ones on Wikipedia in location, then it's less trusted. So Wikipedia should be respected massively, for sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, more, more and more articles like years ago. Um, I didn't see it, but more, more over the last few years. Um, Say for example, celebrities—they've got a lock on the profile, so only certain people can change the um, change the details on it. So you know, it's, it's good to see more and more of that um, come in, just so that there's like an authority figure over it to show that someone's monitoring over it. Um, I'm not too sure who locks it or anything, but it's good that there's some sort of control over there to make sure make sure someone's in control and 
you know, it can yeah, still keep its exactly. credibility. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, building trust or authority is very, very important. Um, particularly in, in, a, in an industry like SEO, for instance, um, which is generally doing some marketing, which is to all intents and purposes unpoliced and relies on a yeah. good citizen, people being good citizens of the community, if you like. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like we're in the legal profession or we're in the medical profession. So we, we have to we have to be mindful of our, rep- our reputation because that's all we have, really. I mean, at the same, like, so we, you, you say that we're not the, the legal profession, but we kind of, could, everyone in the legal profession use, uses Google, don't they? So, like, that's what we do as marketers. That's why it's important that, got that, it, yeah. that, that, we, that we, that's why it's important that we encourage any clients that are in legal, medical, or, you know, fields, you know, to, to, to make sure that everything that they create is credible. And, um, you know, reinforce them, look... <laughs> This kind of stuff is being looked at by one in five people. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I think, I can't remember who was sharing it, one of the Google Webmaster team was talking about how uh, a surgeon literally, like, goes on YouTube to watch how to do procedures. <laughs> it's like, this That'll is the future. That'll be, that'll be the future. Like, the, 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 you'd be able to get a degree on, on, an, on an iPhone off, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, I'm absolutely sure yeah. of it. <laughs> the point is we need to make sure that what we do is trustworthy and credible and everything impacts everything in the world in some way, shape or form. Yeah, sure. So we just talked about a load of interesting stuff. I'll go, I'll go back to a little bit more technical stuff um, a bit later, but I just want to find out a little bit more about you. And you, you're obviously well known in the SEO space, but maybe for people who are outside of the SEO space and in the broader marketing space. Like, how did you get into SEO and, like, why do you find it interesting? What makes you tick? And what made you specifically want to go into technical SEO and kind of how did you learn it? So, like, if you give us, like, a, a background of your, your SEO journey stuck from when you began up until where, where you are now. Yeah, so so it's 13 years ago now when I started with uh, SEO and it was purely by accident. Uh, I owned a completely different type of company. I had a construction company, funnily enough, and I had quite a lot of bands. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how peculiar, yeah. So uh, so um, I had quite a lot of vans on the road, people working for me in an office filled with like people dealing with home maintenance needs and so forth. And uh, that was pretty stressful. And... It was really just in the days where people were starting to get websites built. So I had a couple of websites built for the business and they were absolutely appalling by people. So And it was just laughable, really, now when I look back at it. Um, and in the end, I thought, you know, I'm going to have a go at this myself. So I started building a website. And so I started learning HTML. Then I moved on to PHP. And, you know, I'm still... I'm an amateur at that, but I really love it. And MySQL and JavaScript, etc. And then things changed in the industry and the, the recession hit, the 2008-9 recession, and the construction industry overall just massively got impacted. The business got really impacted. So I had to start to look around and think, well, what am I going to do? And actually... I'd found that I was increasingly spending time on the website more and more. 
trying to optimize it, trying to get traffic and so forth uh, anyway, and building it and tinkering with HTML and watching videos and whatnot. And um, so it seemed like a natural progression. I wanted to then become a developer, you know, an actual proper hardcore developer. So I spent the summer of 2000, well, that was 2007, eight, thereabouts. In a, ba- in a basement somewhere. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I bought I bought a two thousand pound course of videos, like wow. CDs, CDs on PHP. Yeah. Wow, wow. So I literally spent the we whole. We still got them. Yeah, yeah, I have. Wow. Yeah, I mean they're out of date. They're out of date. They're <laughs> PHP four or something like that. Wow. So I literally spent the whole summer, every single day, going through this course, learning PHP. I'm still not amazing at it now, and. The whole thing has moved on a lot. I can do it a bit. But anyway, I, I, I did that. And then eventually I was like, right, I feel ready now to go and get a job in the industry as a developer. But obviously I was, I was, it's a funny combination when you're older because really I was junior, but I was too old to be a junior. <laughs> so, uh, so it's quite a challenge when you're like heading into your 40s, which I was then. And um, and you know, looking to get into that that whole dev space, and then funnily enough, what happened is one of the recruiters that I was dealing with rang me up and said, "Hey, Don, you don't know anything about SEO, do you?" I was like, "Well, yeah, because I've done loads of SEO courses as well in my spare time. Well, in this whole six months that I've been like hunkered down learning, I'd also done a course with Web CEO and done loads of the stuff and got some small certificates in SEO." And obviously, I've been doing my own sites for a couple of years by then. And um, I'd learned a lot of stuff. And also, I had, I had a, a guy who was giving me really great, helpful advice, an enterprise information architect that I came across, who had built worked on some really big sites, and he'd been giving me great advice for quite a few months then. And to this day, he's quite a good, trusted advisor for me. He taught me if you like, how to structure a site using great information architecture, talk about how the core of a site works and, you know, semantic headings and really everything around that whole build a site for SEO rather than throw links at it, that kind of thing, which I've seen a lot this past decade. It's not ever been my approach. It's always been more about how to build it using good IA. So anyway, this recruiter said, um, have you ever done SEO? There's a, there's a company here that are looking to take on an exec. And that was Latitude. So anyway, I went in to see them. I was like, well, I didn't even think about, I wasn't even thinking about uh, becoming an SEO. And then that's where I met. Well, it was Phil McKechnie, actually, who's still, again, a friend and trusted advisor to this day, who's still in the digital space. And... Um, he he gave me gave me a job. I know again, I was I was the oldest <laughs> I was the oldest SEO exec in the company. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of how I started, but I'd already been doing SEO but unofficially for a few years. And so I worked for a, a few agencies, big agencies, I worked on some big brands, and then eventually I had my own projects that I was working on, and eventually I just move towards working for myself and so since 2012 I've had my own if you like 
boutique agency consultancy and I don't ever intend to build a big agency you know each their own I don't really want to have a room full of 50 people I would rather be much more hands-on dealing with just a few select brands who you know stay for years I know them they know me I know all their team etc and they progress really well and they you know that I have a great retention so um yeah so that that's really where where I'm at now really and like I said I just I don't have masses of clients I'm not the cheapest in the world for sure and but it's more of a how can I help this brand who often have an in-house team that are relatively junior in the operational who are working on the operational side of things and um, really helping them to fully understand more around the concepts of search and how they can implement that in an actionable way into the strategies and trying to think more like a search engine almost. Yeah, so mm-hmm. that's a long way round again. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, I, I lecture as well and I, you know, I lecture as well, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, like, I just want to go back quick because it links into the next thing I wanted to talk about. So, like, I wanted to quickly go back to kind of like when you're first learning SEO. Like, where, where were you learning from? I know you said you did a course, but like, what other kind of resources were you looking at? And um, you know, the funny thing is, when you've got a website and you're trying more to, yeah, I've always been very, very hands on, and to this day, I literally am like rolling my sleeves up right in there, testing things on sites. You know, this morning I spent like six hours trying to like analyze some logs using Cloudflare, trying to work out the patterns, trying to think, hey, how's this crawling happening? There are patterns. You have to really, you have to just look, really, really, really look, and you'll see patterns emerge. Google Search Console is amazing for showing patterns, and that is why they give us examples. These are like, it's Cluedo. These are clues, yeah. It's like, what is the word? Cats in plum. Is there a cats in plum included? Oh, I'm not sure. That's the best analogy ever, though, really. <laughs> Comparing Google search yeah. console and Cluedo. <laughs> it really is. Like, it was Mrs. White with the candlestick in the living room. Yeah, in the drawing room. <laughs> Where it's got those patterns, yeah, about round crawl frequency, around, you know, importance, around. Does it really matter, pages? You know, and I'm very hands-on, but at the same time, yeah, so that's it. I'm very hands-on. And and to this day, I've learned SEO really by doing, but then obviously I've been to a lot of conferences where I've learned from others, and I do watch from time to time webinars, and I've been on webinars a lot in the past, and... I watch a lot of information retrieval videos. Uh, there's a great series by Professor Hannah Bass, which is the best modern information retrieval set of videos I've ever come across. And I've got a ton of books on information retrieval, which is really what web search is part of. And the engine room of how search works. So I, I spend a lot of my time reading those kinds of things, trying to work out, How's the machine working itself rather than algorithm chasing? And I and I 
learn from a lot of researchers, but I also do learn off other SEOs as well. Um, I try and avoid the clickbaity SEO things out there. <laughs> and I tend to try and avoid things that are not very well supported in research. And there's a lot of SEO blog posts that are really just, they tend to be a regurgitation of, this kind of regurgitation of, he said this, they said that, blah, blah, blah. But where's the evidence? So I don't tend to spend a lot of my time on that kind of thing, really. And mm-hmm. um, and obviously, in 2012, when Penguin came around, I'd been an SEO then for like five years, something like that. Um, I'm working on my own sites for longer. Um, so, yeah, so I thought, right, this is, I, I need to really understand more about how SEO actually fits in with the web marketing environment as a whole and the world, yeah? Because at the time, I was very siloed in SEO. And it's very easy to be like that when you're very engrossed and, uh, you know, focused SEO because you tend to be so busy looking at the log file analysis or a particular website or you tend to be a bit blinkered to what's happening in the rest of the web or in the rest of the world a little bit. It's all consuming. So, uh, so I then thought, right, I better go and get some formal qualifications in natural search here yeah, or in, in digital <laughs> So then I, I started in 2012, I did the Google Squared. Then I went from Google Squared, I finished that, and I went straight on to doing a postgrad with the IDM in digital. Did that for two years, and then straight on to do a master's for two and a half years at digital at Manchester Met. And, uh, and then I came across, when I was doing my master's dissertation, which is hell, obviously. Um, <laughs> dissertations are awful. Um, and they, they seem to just take over your life. So, uh, but a lot of that involves going into digging into Google Scholar and obviously much more trusted sources than I'd previously come across because I think a lot of us tend to live on not in Google Scholar. A lot of us don't frequent Google Scholar a lot because research papers can tend to be quite dry. But when you're studying for formal qualifications such as a master's or as a, or as a or a Bachelor of Science, you are forced to go and hunt around in, you know, Elsevier or Google Scholar or research papers, Forrester. You, t- you have to go and look at things that are more credible because you are judged on the quality of your citations to a large extent. So, so that's when I really came to realise that actually search is not Search is not just a lot of SEOs having an opinion. There is a there is a science here, and this is the science of information retrieval, and that's how I came across loads of papers on crawling and indexing, and obviously there's all the patents as well, which Bill Slowski writes about. And Bill is very very trusted in our space. He's an ex lawyer, so he really understands patents. But in those patents at the bottom. There are often 20, 30 academic papers referenced. So those are the papers that I tend to spend a lot of my time going to look at. I have Google alerts on all of the 
researchers in particular spaces. So, for instance, I know who the Google, Google researchers in the crawling space are. To be honest, they do a lot of crossover because they'll uh, a lot of, even though information retrieval is increasingly fragmented uh, and as SEO is increasingly fragmented, as we know, spoke about that with Mark the other day, as the industry is maturing, it's splitting up into like technical SEOs, PR SEOs, you know, local SEOs and so forth. An industry such as information retrieval, which is a fork of computer science, has had many, many years to become very fragmented. But at the same time, you'll find that a lot of engineers who work at Google, Microsoft, Yandex, any, any company that has search at the heart of it has engineers that can turn their hand to paid search, link analysis, um, you know, web spam content and so forth because they're all just small micro topics within the bigger topic of information retrieval. And that's why I'd encourage people to watch the videos because it's a bit like, hey, I'm doing a maths degree. Well, maths, maths researchers or mathematicians, they tend to be good at calculus, algebra, statistics. So, you know, consider that all of these different parts of search, such as link analysis, trust and authority detection, compression algorithms, machine learning, web content analysis, they're all the little bits that are parts of the discipline. Maths, if we equated the maths is a discipline, calculus, algebra, blah, 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 are all sec- sectors of maths. So, so I follow a lot of the people in IR, and a lot of them have specialisms that I follow even more closely. And um, some people say to me, hey, but it's not actionable. I completely beg to differ because applying the principles of understanding search more enable, has enabled me to get some really great results with clients because especially the bigger client, bigger projects that are really search engines in themselves, the big websites, um, because crawling some of the biggest websites of the world is a challenge and it's very easy for a search engine to lose sight of what, what this site's about. Um, particularly when you start to bring words into it, linguistics. Yeah. Again, a long answer. Sorry. Oh. I hope it was useful. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. I mean, a, a big skill that you've got through um, all your years of experience is actually being able, able to interpret the data. You can, you can read as much, um, you can read as many articles as you want, as many videos as you want. But unless you're able to kind of get your thoughts and ideas and interpret it and then apply it to something, then it's pretty much useless. So do you get most of your, your research, uh, most of your information through Google Scholar? And, you know, I mentioned, you mentioned videos, like where, where do you find them? Is it through YouTube, YouTube and things like that? Yeah, literally. Do a search for information retrieval. There's loads of videos, yeah. And consider that they are the heart of search. So, you know, Information retrieval and marketing together is SEO in my mind, yeah. That's mm-hmm. the two. One is the science, one is the, the buzz, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the marriage of the two. It's an intersection, technical intersection of marketing and information retrieval. 
good SEO is not manipulation. Good SEO is helping the search engine to see beyond fuzz, yeah, fuzziness, ambiguity. Well, what does this mean? Oh, is that the URL or is that the URL? You know, which path is the right way to to go when I'm crawling this website? Does that word, Jaguar, mean car or is it a big cat? That kind of thing. It's helping a search engine to understand the meaning of the words you're trying to convey to your audience, yeah. So that's SEO. It's not manipulation. Good SEO is not manipulation, yeah. You don't need to manipulate, in my mind, when you when you do SEO well because the popularity will rise to the surface. Inflated popularity is another thing altogether, and obviously that's something that search engines are also increasingly getting better at detecting. Again, algorithms are growing, data, data is growing, machine learning is growing, but uh, feed-forward learning from machine learning is training the algorithms to know what is a paid guest blog, paid guest blog post, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, they'll train it to know what it looks like. And if you've ever used any of the machine learning tools out there and thrown some text in to categorize, I mean, it'll literally just be a categorization algorithm. That's it. It'll literally be like classifier. The classifier says yes, paid blog post. Classifier says no. Classifier yes, classifier no. <laughs> And it will build a picture of what does a paid guest blog post look like? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. That's it, yeah. So we should probably spend our time doing better things than uh, trying to trick search engines. Yeah, I mean, there's no way past Google at the end of the day. And as as SEOs, it's our jobs to present the best version of a website for the user to hand to Google for them to crawl. You know, it's our job to encourage our clients to realize that they have great content that they talk that they create themselves every day every single handbook on the on the topic that they are experts in or the field is is content that they can use in some way shape or form <laughs> sometimes the best best content that our clients could produce is sat creating dust on the shelves of their own Offices, yeah. So it's about utilising what you have and turning that into knowledge that you want to share with an audience. Sometimes it's not even expensive. Doing these kind of podcasts that you're doing, you're creating great content that hopefully will be useful. It's not... It's another league. It's another league entirely to saying... Hey, I've got a, an article for your website. All I want is a do follow link. You know that kind of stuff. That's yeah. not good content. Doesn't doesn't really mean anything because again, that's in in some like it, it, it's more about the user and kind of get, giving something that benefits the user more than just trying to manipulate getting a link. At the end of the day, it's 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 more to build your your, your profile as a website and. Um, making you know have a diverse and you know contextual backlink profile you're not just getting a link for the sake of it yeah exactly and you know what <clears throat> i remember um Dwayne forestry used to be the equivalent of you know the google webmaster trends analyst 
uh, Microsoft, Bing, he came out with a great quote, and I everybody cites it. The best li- the best backlink is the backlink you didn't expect to get. Yeah. So I agree. I agree. You know what? Seriously, <laughs> I, ne- I you don't need to go hunting for these things. Yeah, in my mind, um, good links come to people who create things that are worth having. Yeah, I'm yeah. gonna link when I write something. So I did a piece for the search engine land around Google Bert. I don't know whether you saw that. I was around the whole, like, what is Bert, blah, 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 because I've been studying it for a while. I linked to places that I knew knew more about Bert's than me, yeah? So, so I linked land piece to the actual academic paper, Google Bert's, yeah? that came out in 2018. I linked to things like the Hugging Face community, which is doing a lot of stuff around Google Bert. I didn't link manipulatively. I linked because it's going to help a user. And actually, I know that these these places, there's further good, valuable information, yeah. That's, that's, they didn't ask me. That paper, the author of that paper, Google Bert, he didn't say, hey, Dawn Anderson, not that he knows me, hey, Dawn Anderson, can you link to the paper on Google Bird? He doesn't care that I'd link to him, yeah? But I'm linking to him because that's the original paper on Google Bird, yeah? He doesn't know that I've sent a link, yeah? or that team of researchers does not know I've sent a link. Because, and that's the best link. The best link is the type of link you didn't expect to get, yeah, or that you didn't know was coming. That means you're becoming trusted, yeah. Whereas you have, like, there's some industries that are worse than others for the whole guest blog thing, yeah. And there's some industries as well that are really bad for paid linking, particularly in the influencer marketing space, yeah. Yeah. Industries, you know who you are, yeah. I think people know who they are if I'm talking about them, Yeah. yeah. So they need to be mindful that they are on the the links that they're paying for are probably at this stage not counting, so they should probably save their money, yeah? So, yeah. Yeah. So, so, Sue, you're a very, very busy person with all the research that you do, all the the papers that you read, doing the hands-on client work yourself, running the, the day-to-day runnings of a business, but also you're a, a lecturer at MMU in Manchester uh, where you lectured me in second year of university. How do you manage to, to balance everything? I know like there's, there's a lot of, you know, you know there's, there's a lot of hours kind of, um, like hand, I'm not sure how, how many hands-on hours you do uh, teaching, but there's also like the market and things like that. Like how... How do you manage to balance everything? Are you an octopus? <laughs> uh, no, not. But, well, I do less. I don't. I don't do a lot of lecturing now, and it's more just less lecturing from time to time. Um, so, and supervising. This past few years, I've supervised master's students, so who were undertaking their their actual master's dissertation. So, but that that was really exciting. So that's. That, that's a bit of work, but that's more just phone calls, Zoom calls, Skype calls with 
the student and helping them and guiding them through the process, the various stages of their, their master's, uh, their master's dissertation rather. So that's that. Um, I'm not obviously speaking at many conferences anymore because nobody is, <laughs> because nobody's travelling. But I did decide this year I was cutting back on that anyway so that I could concentrate just more on the clients that I work with and um, and my own projects more. So, um, so I, I don't even know. I, I really only ever deal with a handful of clients at one time. Again, they kind of they have to be a really good fit for me, and I have to be a good fit for them. And um, I tend to be very involved with with them and their their team. So, so that's so my so my business, if you like, is not a traditional agency. Uh, again, I wouldn't necessarily have the time to run a big agency. With lo- That's just not what I'm looking to do. Uh, and I have been working for myself for many years. As I say, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of experienced in business anyway before I got into digital because I've worked for myself in my own companies from being in my 20s. So, um, so yeah, so I know, I know all about the having to file my VAT return. I've got a great accountant. I'm... I absolutely hate having to do my VAT every three months, but I use things like really great software like Zero, and I have an amazing accountant. And over the years, I've actually found a lot of ways to do things that are big time processing. Processing. Yeah, processes, machinery, processes, software, um, technology, that kind of thing. So, you know, I've been working myself for a long time yeah got everything systemized and, and, and organized that that's more important and i heard you on another podcast that was talking about um you know just systemizing everything um you know like for, for example like taking advantage of all the different google products like google calendar and you now i found that useful at university and like the biggest question that i wanted to ask you well, one of them because so many was I, I know my opinions on this but how, how do you what would you say to people that think university isn't isn't worth it if you want to go if you want to go into um say digital marketing for example specifically SEO. okay so i see this discussion a lot and I've, so I've, met, I've talked about it so many times on yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you know a lot of people presume that i took the traditional route and i took i was an undergraduate in my like 20s and blah 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 etc not so i've had the, the merit I've had the benefit of both of working doing the hands-on and doing the actual not having that formal education because I didn't actually do it a bachelor of science I didn't do a first degree ever yeah I started working at 14 and I carried on working all the way through my working life yeah, yeah. and then at 40 so I got into it so, I, so in 20 odd I started running my own businesses and then the recession came, changed, went into SEO by accident. Because in life, you have to reinvent yourself sometimes, several times, because I see this is coming soon. Now, the last recession, I had to like, be like, oh, my God, I need to rethink myself. And you know, when you have a mortgage, you have to rethink. And that's a measure of the person being able to reformulate. So it's an evolution of yourself, if you like. So, 
And I see that coming now. I think a lot of people are having to like rethink their lives just with since coronavirus because a lot of people have been made redundant. A lot of people have lost contracts. A lot of people have been furloughed. You know, people are having to have this fight or flight attitude now. And sometimes a lot of lessons will be learned that will actually make them better people. So, uh, so, so yes, no, I've, yes, no. So no, I, I didn't have a normal degree, first degree. So I didn't go to university, 18 to 20 odd. And I didn't do the whole freshers week and then get, you know, have a great, amazing time and be a traditional student and trek around Thailand at 20 odd, like they all do. I would work, in fact, actually, to be totally honest, at 19, I was a mum, yeah? So my son, who, my son is, he's 30-odd now, yeah? So so he's working, and I was a mum as well. So, so not your traditional roots at all, yeah? So I, at 40, then I thought, I'm going to have to get a formal qualification because I've got all this hands-on experience of doing digital, all this hands-on experience of business, but it's all like the school of life, yeah? apart from my O-levels and GCSEs, O-levels back then. So now um, I thought, right, well, get it, better get in there. That's why I took the postgrad and then I did the master's. And actually the university, it's only because I had the postgrad previously that they let me into Manchester Met because it's very difficult to get on a master's course with just with grand, what they call grandfather rights, yeah, which is life experience and industry experience. They probably would have let me in, but it's easier when you've got another formal qualification, which is a postgrad. And, you know, the day I graduated was like one of the proudest days of my life because I was like, oh, my God, I've finally got a degree. I finally get to wear a cap and gown, you know, at 40-odd. Uh, so... So what I would say to people is don't judge people whose shoes you're not in for a start. I would never, ever, ever, I'm never the slightest bit, um, I never regret going off and doing my master's. Even though it was a lot of years, I learned probably more than I've ever learned in all those other years of hands-on experience in my life, yeah? Because I learned to be much more strategic. I learned strategy. A lot of the stuff I've been doing up to that point were very tactical. Yeah, Doing a master's and, and master's level thinking or even university level thinking, you're able to, you are taught how to think differently. So instead of just jerking from one like crisis to the next, you're able to step back, be a bit more calm. You have to be because you have a ton of deadlines juggling all these plates. So you, there's a lot of learnings to be had from university. Yeah, It just makes, makes life a bit easier if you're able to be much calmer and much more strategic and look down and understand all these channels, how it's, everything's working together. Yeah, So that is the biggest things I've learned from having structured learning. Yeah. That's not to say that people can't do really well who are just more hands-on school of life, yeah? And there's some affiliates that do amazingly well who haven't got any formal qualif qualifications and they're millionaires, billionaires, whatever, yeah? Fair enough, yeah? 
there's different routes you can take. Both are not easy routes. You have to be very determined. You have to be constantly. You know the Pareto law is very true to everything. I know I keep harking back to that. There's many things that you'll be like, oh, my God, this is a waste of time. Why am I wasting my time doing this? It's a nightmare. And then just as you're about, I know it seems like a cliche and it's so true. Just as you're like, oh, I'm ready to give up, some solution comes, yeah. It's the 80-20 rule that is everywhere in the world, yeah. 80% of the work produces 20% of the results. 20% of the work produces 80% of the results. To get the results, you have to do the 100%. I know it sounds like, what, what do they call it? Hustle, hustle. Oh, hustle nonsense <laughs> but you know and I'm not into that whole like hustle nah, yourself, work it. like a <laughs> but we do have there are certain power laws Pareto is one of them yeah so anybody that's gonna everybody has to work really hard the point is I'm not gonna judge anybody for not doing a degree but at the same time a degree is great I know you leave university with a load of debt that's a nightmare yeah and uh, that's a shame. But again, even managing, even like, even managing debt makes you an adult. Yeah. So. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, like my, my opinion is on university. Like at, at the time, you know, I was there. Like I, I was kind of like struggling, struggling to see like the, the necessarily like, the benefit of yeah. it at the time. But like when I look back, I think about all the intangible skills that I've learned. So like the day to day things. Um, like the day-to-day content of university, I don't always use it all. But some of the skills, like communication skills, project management skills, um, you know, um, just like organization, that kind of thing, um, you in effect kind of learn how to learn. So like you, you kind of get told where to look, and then you you learn yourself, and you, you find out what kind of learner you are. And you know that that's. I, I, I always say the biggest thing about university and the most important thing about university, and I re- usually recommend it, um, is you, you kind of find out more about yourself and how you learn. And, and also, if you get the chance to, then you can you can move out from your parents if you, if that's an option. Uh, in terms of the debt, I don't think it's a big enough issue. When, when you're paying it back, you don't tend to notice much. It's not as if, you know... You, no, you just, just, it just, it's just one of those things. It's like a, an introduction to a mortgage... <laughs> It's there. It's like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, soon, as soon as you graduate, you're paying a mortgage, pretty much. But yeah, I mean, like okay. university, it's, it's it's great. Like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have a lot of skills that, without going to university, and I would, wouldn't. You know, there's, there's a lot of very um, very intelligent lecturers like yourself, and um, a lot of people who've done a lot of research, and a lot of people who've worked in industry. Like I think that's pretty much a criteria for someone to work at NMU that you've got to have, I think it's like a, a doctorate, or, no, sorry, a PhD or something, and you've got to have an industry experience. So I, I think like you, you learn from a lot of different interesting people from different backgrounds. And that, that as well for me, like, um, you know, living where I live is kind of like a bubble, but then you meet people from around the country and from around the world as well. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm quite an advocate of university, unless the uh, people that say it's... The people say it's not worth it are the ones that don't take the opportunities at uni, like um, making the most of it, I think. Yeah, I think, well, one thing, I have to give a hat tip to the lecturers at the University of Manchester Met, the digital team. I have every admiration for them, and they are super smart people, 
and you know the experience the wealth of experience between them and both not I mean a lot of people there's this awful saying those that can can and those that can't teach what an absolute crock of crap that is excuse my French every one of those lecturers uh, that I can think of has either worked in industry I mean gosh look at Ali Ali Johns worked in industry for some of the biggest brands yeah leading teams uh, Jeff McCarthy, you know, again, worked for huge brands. And um, Dave Edmondson, but they're all, like, really super smart people. And then you've got Dr. Bex, who is huge online, and she speaks all over the all over the world, and she's written books. She even wrote a book around uh, yeah. Keep Calm and Carry On. I mean, she's a multi-sighted author. So, yeah. you know... I rebuke anybody that says those that can, can, and those that can't teach. It's absolute nonsense. So, yeah, I just needed to get that in there. And I've, I got so riled up about that, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> yeah, uh, I forgot as well. I mean, we were just talking about, like, the, the importance of the university. And, you know, I, I think that everyone should should experience it. And, like, in, in terms of that, like, you, you shouldn't worry because you don't tend to notice it going out. Um, you know what? I think a lot of people, I think... When I was younger, I'm saying like, <laughs> it's the truth, but in my generation, literally, hardly anybody went to university. It was posh kids that went to university. Literally, nobody, nobody went to university from my area. Seriously. It was bankers' children or it was, you know, you had to be like a dentist or a banker or you were from really posh families to go to university. Now... Pretty much everybody can go to university. Yeah. With you know, I know that some some families still don't have that benefit, but the there's so many more people can go and benefit from university and it is a gift, yeah. If I'd been, you know, now if, if the opportunity had been there all those years ago, then for me, then that would have been amazing. I didn't even get to college because my mum, I, I, st- I got a summer job and my mum sort of said, hey, well, you can keep the summer job now uh, rather than go to college. So, so so I think it's easy to not appreciate the massive benefit that has become available to young people now that is through university. Even if you do end up with a debt, then it is a gift that has not necessarily been available to generations previously. Yeah, so and uh, like... Like if anyone's listened to this, um, like trying to start a business or anything, like I started my business at university and like the support at the university and different universities is probably um, different like enterprise schemes and stuff like that. But um, MNU, it's really good. Like the innovation center, I think I think it's still there. Is it still there? Yeah, I, mean, I think they have the incubator, don't they? For, uh, incubator, yeah. New startups, yeah, which is really great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is really is good, it? and like it, it's there's so there's so much support, but it's not only the support, but the, the contacts you make. Like I've um, I've met a lot of um, people through uni, so like people that I've I've worked with and people who've passed passed on business. So like it's a good place to network as well, and like people want you to succeed. People want you to succeed, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. The lecturers want people to succeed, and you know. They're very, they're very um, invested in the students and seeing them do well. So, yeah, 
yeah, definitely. So back to search. I want to talk a little bit about voice search. Um, I know this is a, a big thing for you. So can you talk to us a little bit about how search engines are processing conversations? I know we mentioned before, there's so many different variations and there's a lot of things that go into understanding words, you know, like the difference between the animal Jaguar and the car Jaguar. So how are search engines um, going about this and how can brands um, start to build a pillar so that they can ensure that the website's kind of, I wouldn't say optimized necessarily for it, but making sure that they're, they're, they're ready for it. You know, the thing is, the key is consistency <laughs> to everything. Um, but I mean, ultimately, voice search is just search. <laughs> That's it. It's the same thing. It's just mining and extracting words, utilizing the knowledge graph as well. So, a few years ago, I went to a summer school on information retrieval in Barcelona, and one of the lecturers was from Google's research team, conversational search research team in Switzerland, and he was talking about how the way that it works is when they're extracting results for search, conversational search, they first check the knowledge graph because that is back to that different forms of data. Do you remember I talked about structured data? Databases, actually. Are the, databases are the most um, structured form of data. Yeah, so if you look inside the heart of a WordPress site into the cPanel and look at the PHP My Admin, that's a database, yeah. Or tabular data or a spreadsheet, that's a very strong form of data, yeah. Incredibly powerful. Almost too powerful. Yeah. Um, and then you have like semi-structured data, which a lot of people don't realise, but they call it... A lot of people refer to structured data when it's really semi-structured data because it's not fully structured like a database, yeah. So that's things like schema, RDF, uh, the web ontology language, all these different types of linked data as Tim Berners-Lee referred to it many years ago. The web of data versus the web of words, yeah? So things that are connected, like when you look up, I don't know, I don't think, give, name, me, name me a famous person, Van Diesel, yeah, Van Diesel. You look up Van Diesel online and you'll say, this is Van Diesel, he was born on this day, he was da-da-da-da-da, he was married to hit that person, he's starred in these films, blah, blah, blah. You look at the film, all the other related films are there. That's an example of the relationships and structured or data, the knowledge bank, if you like. Uh, so conversational search first checks all of that to build answers, yeah? And then um, it fills in from... So it checks the databases, known trusted databases, then the knowledge graphs, and then the semi-structured data schema and so forth. And then when it's running out of gaps to fill, it'll just go and check the web of text. But I imagine it probably now uses also the things like Google BERT, machine learning, um, natural language, pro all these. I mean, Google BERT has been massive for natural language processing understanding. So that's probably feeding a lot into voice search now, both English and internationally. Feature snippets as well comes from there. And I think also that, as you imagine, there'll be a very little of it that actually just comes 
from the blurb words completely because there will be structure and order. So what I would say to people who are like, oh, I must optimise this page for search. <laughs> yes, you do. But you need to just optimise it by adding structure and order and make it semantically clear what the topic is because a lot of people are like, oh, well, search engines can understand everything when I write this 5,000 word long <coughs> blog post. Just answer the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just answer the question. But answer, but make sure that there is structure. Yeah. <laughs> make sure you use things like table of contents because they're a form of semi-structured data. <clears throat> Excuse me. Make sure you use things like unordered lists, ordered lists, tabular data in between to provide clues. Yeah. So that's where voice search is coming from. To send the structured data, the semi-structured data, the blurb, yeah. Probably now with machine learning, questions also asked in there as well. I know, for instance, that Microsoft have this thing called MS Marco, which is a question and answer data set. An actual fact, machine learning is being trained with question and answer data sets, yeah? So that's probably feeding in as well <coughs> to voice search, yeah? So it's still not there yet. There's a way to go, but it's definitely, you know, the future. It really is because, you know, there'll always be a place for people who want to sit there maybe and do things like desktop search. Everything always has a place. But eventually, you know, we'll tip into that space at some point in the future where it'll just become human nature to ask a search engine a question rather than go and type it. The minute, I imagine the vast majority are still going to Google and typing in because the, the answers are not that reliable. And actually, Google's, I've got five Google Homes over my house. <laughs> They're really annoying, actually. They interrupt each other. You ask a question of one in the living room, the kitchen answers, yeah? And um, it doesn't even know how to say the words five live, yeah? Uh, sport, yeah what's that radio channel, five live, yeah? Uh, it says, here we are, five live on the TV, yeah. Here we are streaming five live from Spotify. Uh, sports, is it Sports Live? Is there a program? Talk Sport? I can't remember. But anyway, ultimately my husband always switches it on. But the search engine does it pronounces it wrong. That annoys me every single time. Um, I check, I use it mostly for Spotify, for music. I check the weather. Most people check weather. So it's not amazing. Um, it's not. It sometimes misunderstands things you say. Things you say as well. Really annoying. So yeah, but it'll get there. Like everything, you know. Back in the day, you remember the massive house brick mobile phones. You're probably too young for that. But people laughed at people at somebody with a house brick mobile phone. They'll never catch on. <laughs> you know. Here we are now. We none of us would dream of going out without a mobile phone. It's like part of their arm. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, people people wear it like a, the like wearable technology is a big thing now, and Google Glasses are probably coming. Um, probably uh, come back. Yeah. I mean, again, Google Glass was Google Glass was a bit <laughs> embarrassing. I mean, yeah. How ugly yeah. was that? How, that was the equivalent of the massive housebreak of a mobile phone. It's like <laughs> talking about. You may as well have a sign on your head saying, "I am a geek." Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> um, it will, you know, things will come back, yeah, evolve. <laughs> so, like, in, in terms of, so for, for listeners with WordPress websites, how, how would you actionably go about um, adding schema markup data on websites? So is there any specific plugins that you like to use to, so, like, simple plugins to use? or? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I get that not everybody is that massively technical and they don't necessarily want to do their own, like, custom schema or anything i tend to like use do I have my own custom schema but uh, i know that yoast has got a, a plugin that connects that actually links together lots and lots of different schema points um i use wordlift which is great as well wordlift is actually it's a very good structured data and that's a massive has a massive impact it builds vocabularies that are uh, Machine learned, powered by machine learning, and Andre Volpini is behind that. Really good. He's really good. Um, so that's a plugin that you can get. Wordlift, um, and then obviously the schema app as well. Martha Van Berkel, super smart lady. She's built a great app. She's an amazing schema lady. That's called Schema App. And then there's lots and lots of tools out there to do your own. Merkle have tools to build schema. And obviously there's even, the last time I checked, there was even the event schema markup that you could use in Google Search Console to do data highlighting. So and there's so data highlighting is pretty good. I've used that on projects as well. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's lots of, Loads of things out there. And I would encourage people to increasingly use it more. Even the things that Google's not necessarily supporting yet because the chances are it's going to be supported in the future. And if it's not, you know, it's all good experience. Be agile. Be better at, like, implementing things. If it takes you two years to implement something because you're an enterprise brand, well, I'm afraid... You deserve to have your backside kicked by the affiliates who are agile. <laughs> and I see a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just about it can't be like that nowadays. No. <laughs> Got to keep moving. Search is always going to keep moving. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and one one thing I wanted to um, ask you, and I, I asked Rick last last week the same question was, um, you know, you can add all the, the schema markup data and, and everything, get your website optimised and everything. But, you know, for um, products such as, you know, Alexa, go on over there. Oh, it's, it's just gone off. Um, <laughs> so that, that product over there. Um, we have to sell that. We have to talk like that about the G product. <laughs> it'll go away. <laughs> it'll go away that. Um, but, yeah, anyway, so, you know, like, obviously Amazon is like a powerhouse. And, oh, like, People pay for ads on Google Shopping and they've got Google Assistant. So do you think ads will start to play a part in voice devices in the future? Paid results? Yeah, well, I think ultimately there will always there will eventually be a presence of ads and organic everywhere because, you know, the search engine is a commercial organisation. Yeah. None of us is not a charity. Um they they also need 
people sometimes do a lot of the time prefer organic i see a lot of people complaining about oh google's ads are everywhere you know what people still scroll past ads a lot of the time i scroll past ads do you scroll past ads you often scroll yeah i scroll past ads a lot not usually for the most part well a certain percentage of the time that um they're not always exactly specific with, with organic search, searching exactly, exactly exactly so that anyway the point, that's kind of i digress slightly there but the point is i think yes i think eventually everything will have a page and an organic element to it and i think the two work side by side really well and um yeah i think yeah so but i think the reason why the moment there's not really a massive presence of page in voice searches because there can only be one there can only be one or maybe two answers yeah and it's really hard you know i always talk about the four candles four the two ronnies four candles and four candles when you read that in words you realize there is a difference but when you see it here in voice they sound exactly the same yeah voice search is harder because you have the challenge of misunderstanding words linguistically and voice as well yeah so um so so i I think that in reality it probably needs to be a bit further on for ads to start to really have any kind of reliable presence in voice search and think i think uh i think there'll always be like the importance of something organic in all of these spaces at the heart of search is information retrieval, and that community is very respected and very, very, they're big advocates of fairness, yeah. In fact, there is fields growing of fairness in AI, yeah. I think they, 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 they love the open source effects, yeah. And organic search is almost like an open source effect, yeah, of search, yeah. So I can't see anytime soon anybody getting rid of organic i think ads will come into everything eventually for monetization but at the same time i think search engines need probably need they probably realize things have got to be a lot better the precision must be higher accuracy must be higher before you start to monetize things because otherwise you're just going to put people off and where are they going to go if they get bad results from their paid search but no organic results they're going to go to another search engine Every search engine has competitors. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And I, I think if there's too many ads, it, it may kill, kill off. You know, Google. Uh, well, you know, universal search. Universal search. People have many different information needs. Yeah. The, there's. You don't have to just go for depth. You can go for breadth of query. You know. Mm-hmm. There's many, many different things. And oh, do you know what? As well, people. People who type the same word, people have many ways of typing the same thing but have different meanings. And, many, and also pe- many people have the same type, different things for the same thing as well. So it goes two ways, yeah? There's this thing called the vocabulary problem. I'll give you an example. What does Manchester, if I type the word Manchester in, yeah? So if I type the word cafes in manchester what does that mean what am i looking for well it could mean manchester in north of england america canada 
Australia. What else? What else could it mean? Uh, I'm not sure. What cafes in Manchester? Yeah. yeah, but does it mean Manchester, Manchester, or does it mean Manchester, Manchester? Because there's Greater Manchester. There's the outskirts, the post town of Manchester, which is another parameter. Oh yeah. Within Northern Quarter, Wally Range. You know, is it Greater Manchester? Is it Greater Greater Manchester, like me and Rochdale? Yeah, or is it actual Manchester? The city centre where nobody, you know, you know, do you know what I mean? Where it's about understanding exactly. I mean, obviously, intent is a big thing, and obviously, particularly with some of the things that are fuzzy around the edges, like Rochdale, Lancashire, Rochdale, Greater Manchester, oh. Oldham, Lancashire, Oldham, you know, Merseyside, which I know you're originally from. The boundaries of Merseyside have changed many times. Yeah. Sefton, Merseyside, the Wirral. These, the and there's councils, there's post towns, there's like administrative areas. It's really not easy for search engines to understand these things. Yeah. It's hard for humans to understand them in the first place, really, because okay. sometimes, well, sometimes it's listed somewhere, uh, like on the post, for example. Sometimes it's Wirral, South Wirral. But you know what? In addition to all of that. There is no shortage of queries for us to meet the information need of, yeah. One thing brands can do is just focus on a handful of keywords. It's a joke. Seriously. Then they're like, oh, my God, last week, this week, my 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 rankings have dropped from, like, position one to position ten. Well, maybe query intent shifted. Maybe search behaviour suddenly shifted around that query. That is a dangerous game to play, hanging all your like, hanging all your all your um, chances on just a handful of queries. I always take the broad approach, broad approach that that eventually like you become so authoritative in all of those things that you can't fail to rank in the top ten for the big stuff as well because you're meeting all these informational needs. Yeah, there's a really interesting book that I just finished up. Been talking about this quite a bit this past few weeks called Search Result Diversification. And in that, it looks at what's the best result. The best result when a query is ambiguous is the site that can meet all of the information, the URL that can meet all of the informational needs. Obviously, it depends on the query. If the query is clearly transactional, then it's going to be a shopping site. But if it's a query that could have vagueness, the best result is probably the one that could meet all of those needs, yeah? And then, yeah. So you have to, there's no shortage of queries for us to help with. So when you're going through, what what are your best ways of researching queries? Do you go through, like, um, social listening tools, like, um, uh, Lots of like forums, Lots like, of answer the public? I know um, you're speaking to Mark Williams-Cook, and he, He's got his own tool. Oh, yeah, that's a good tool, yeah. Um, so, I, I saw that and, and then I compared it to Answer the Public and it just completely blows out of the water. Like, I'm, I was really impressed yeah. by that tool. Like, you, know, um, you, know, you know what, as well? So, there's loads of great tools out there. So, obviously, Answer the Public and also Asked. Mm-hmm. And then, our own eyes, go to the search results, type the query in, see what comes up, yeah? That's a big one. A lot of people don't do that, yeah? What comes up in images... Also, 
go and look at image search, look at the clustering and categorization because images are treated differently to words. Look at topics, yeah, of those kinds of things. Then go off and research those topics further. Um, forums, sign up to newsletters in industries, for instance. Do Google alerts on an industry. See the topics. What's the hot stuff that they're talking about? Look at things like Days of the Year, which is owned by John O's, John O and his wife, John o Alderson from Yost and his wife, which looks at these are the things that people are talking about in a particular vertical. Yeah, look, well, all I'm saying is go and look at Days of the Year and maybe categorise all those days according to the vertical. What are the things that matter? If you're in construction, probably. Play hug a plumber is a day where you could do a bit of screaming and shouting, need some content, yeah? When are the awards in your industry? When are the industry events? So just go, you have to get to know the industry, yeah? Who are the key players? What what are competitors creating? Are they getting traction? Um, yeah, there's loads and loads of places. Link analysis. Link analysis is a great way of seeing what, seeing the, what, what the topics are because you just literally extract all the URLs of the blogs from the competitors. Provides <laughs> <laughs> quite a good picture of, you know, especially if you go back over the last year, you can see exactly what they did last year. Mm-hmm. Which immediately maps, maps the seasons of the year, yeah. 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 So you, you quickly mentioned like social. So is there any way that you can use social to kind of benefit you from an SEO point of view? I know... There's no, there's no like, there's, there's no kind of factors, um, but there's quite a lot of correlations, isn't there, between you know a good. Well, yeah. Well, social is hugely important. Yeah. Social. Social doesn't. Social is a search, right? Okay, I always use this example. Search is a high intent channel. When people go to a search engine, they have they are they are the hunters. They're looking for something. In social, they're often not looking. They want to chat. You're having to interject politely or just as an aside, like you're tapping them on the people on the shoulder saying, oh, what do you think of this, blah, blah, blah. And actually, if you oversell, people get annoyed at you and start to unlike you and so forth. But the point is, the intent is high with search. For me, take it to analogy of football. So search and and social are members of the same football team. Search direct or direct is obviously a big driver of traffic. The bigger the brand grows, but that goal by direct was set up by lots of channels working together. Social is the is the wing, is running up and down the side, yeah, tapping people on the shoulder, passing the ball around. And finally, organic is like passing it forward, passing it forward, and direct, if you've built a brand, is like the goal scorer, or organic is the goal scorer. Social doesn't score that many goals, but if it wasn't there, you'd really miss it off the team. Yeah. Does that a good analogy? Love it. Absolutely love that. I'm going to make that into a joke and put it on link there. I love that. <laughs> I've never heard that analogy before. I never, never thought about that that way either. That was, that was brilliant. You have to have everything, yeah. You have to have everything together, working together. I was trying to add something, but I, I, I think you've got everything. <laughs> um, so uh, another, I, I know we, we've touched on it 
like quite a lot of times, but I don't think we've kind of like given the, the listeners like a definition, like a full definition of informational retrieval. Would you be able to give us kind of like a, a bit of an explanation? I know it's a, obviously a huge. I think there's a, it's one of those things. There's many, many, many definitions. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a topic that information retrieval researchers actually research. <laughs> you know, it's like people in SEO. What is SEO? Well, we know it stands for search engine optimization, but what really is SEO? You know, people have like all these opinions. What is SEO? Yeah. I think it's the same yeah. information retrieval. But do you remember? Do you remember that when Google's first started, Sergey Brin and Larry Page? I said, what we want to do is organise all, all the information of the world. Yeah, what is that? What did they say? Our mission is to organise all the information of the world in an accessible fashion. Something along those lines. I've got the exact quote. But that's it. It's like you're taking every piece of the information in the world and organising it as much as possible in a library that is accessible for all easy to find, you know, it literally is that. It's like a huge library. The, the web is the library from door and the, and the wealth of knowledge. Then um, the index is all the books and all the books that the search engines have decided or the pages of books which, which search engines have decided are worthy to add into their, into their shelves. And obviously the results are the equivalent of you go into the library and you ask a librarian to bring you a particular book or a page of a book and you, she goes to the shelf and she finds it and returns it. So information retrieval is about the, cry, the crawling or discovery of good stuff, good, good information or just information that is of above a certain threshold. Then the filing, the librarian has got the trolley and she's going off filing it on all I've said she there that's me being biased or he I should have said she or he sorry that's my conditional biasing there um so he or she the librarian takes the trolley and files all the books on all the shelves according to genre topic etc and then somebody goes into the library and asks for a book or whatever a reference and the librarian spits out, well, she doesn't spit it out literally, but she goes and brings a book. That's the serving of the results. So it's crawling, indexing, serving of information. And for information, that's just web search. Information retrieval goes far beyond that. Even music information retrieval. You know, Spotify is music information retrieval. Uh, Pinterest is image information retrieval. Amazon is a, is a search engine. eBay is a search engine. Everything, these are all just search engines, ultimately, yeah. I know we don't think of them as that, but everything that you can search and seek information on is a search engine. Even your Shopify website is a search engine. Yeah, so that's information retrieval. That's it. It's everything. It's all around us. Out of out of um, I know, like what what interests them most? That bit, like what what makes you take about that? Like what what makes you want to research it? And like what what do you find the most? Is it something you've just always 
I probably got interested in it in 2000, when I was doing my master's, really. Yeah. Uh, but, but I'd come across crawling prior to that because I'd had a project that was parameter-driven that totally fell apart and all the parameters just got crawled and just it totally tanked and it was just a disaster. And, and, and that really got me interested in the whole notion of crawl, crawl tank. <laughs> where a side just gets overcrawled and just falls apart because it happened to me. And uh, so that was even before um, even before I, I got into doing my master's and digging around in Google search, Google Scholar, sorry. Uh, but then when I started to find the papers, I was all over it like a rash. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a really interesting like summary of web crawling by Mark New York who's a researcher at Google. You should read it if you get a chance. It literally looks at the history of crawling. So I'm interested in crawling, but at the same time, I'm interested in all kinds of things, queries, uh, just web search generally, just understanding disambiguation in content, but also marketing because uh, I'm interested in the digital marketing side of it. So... I really do want to help brands that work with me to do well and help them to, like, you know, I, I absolutely, I mean, I check rankings all the time. I check, and I check why is that there. And I was like, oh, my God, even on Christmas Day, I'm like, oh, my God, I hate it when the traffic's down. <laughs> like, uh, but, the point, uh, but the point is, uh, the point is, uh, yeah, so I'm interested in it all. I'm probably not as interested as a lot of people are in the link acquisition side of SEO because I've just oh. never really, just never really got in my thing to that extent. And, um, yeah, but, but I, yeah, I just, I just find it all very interesting. Yeah. Based on what it's you learn, based on what you're learning at the moment, what you're reading, um, and your past experience, can you see any future predictions on what you think is coming in, in search in your, in your space and, you know, what you think is coming as a whole and as a marketing industry, do you think? Well, I think overall, I think trust is going to become increasingly important because of all this fake news and the GDPR thing. And there's a lot of stuff coming through around cookies and the, the use of third-party data. I think it's going to be increasingly important to... Go a bit back to basics and build good old-fashioned relationships with your customers and, uh, you know, be, be that trusted brand. I think that's going to be important, I think. But at the same time, I think that there'll be a marrying of that with increasingly intelligent programmatic solutions. So the machine learning side of things. But at the same time, there is concerns over that because, as I say, there are fields building up now about, about fairness and trust in AI because every field has the potential to have a bad actor in it. And information retrieval and particularly machine learning and the likes of Google Bird and these black box algorithms do raise flags and concern because in the wrong hands it could be very, very dangerous. So I think increasingly search will be all around us in an omnipresent kind of way in everything we do. Over time, I think there'll be an increasing element of personalization. I think the need to get people to opt in 
to a personalisation will become increasingly important. Uh, and it's an exchange value. Trust. I'll give you my knowledge. I'll give you my data if if you do things that help me to trust you, yeah? And together people can create, co-create with these brands and that's the highest level. If you remember a university field of looks at the loyalty ladder. So CRM, customer relationship management, is an increasingly important area of, of, a, of just life, search, SEO as well. I think SEO could do far worse than join forces with the CRM team. I think there's awful often there's far too often a, a disregard for SEO in some of these other marketing departments and the results are impacted negatively because of that disregard because search is all around us, yeah. There'll always be a need for search engines to understand these fuzzy edges, if you like. Yeah, dangly nodes, they call it, actually. Things that just, <laughs> it's true, they call it a dangly node. Edges that just like are not connected to things that they're related to on the edges of the link graphs, yeah? It's like the edge of the world, yeah? So I think trust, increasing automation, personalization, mass personalization, but as a trusted source of information, and an increasing move to online. I'm concerned for the high street, but. I think the high street will become more of an experience rather than, you know, I think the leisure industry, the experience industry will will benefit from that. The city centres will be very much a part of, the, you know, the experience economy as such, yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm conscious of time, so, like, um, we'll, we'll get... You know, I, so, okay, you know, we've been for like so long. I hope he's just coming in. Oh, <laughs> my son's old bedroom here. Surprise! <laughs> we haven't seen the dog in this time. Is, is she okay? Or he, is he? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, the dog's outside. I hope he's just told me. He's just he's just going for some ant killer. We managed to get an ant hill under a cherry tree, and uh, oh. we're trying to find ways to kindly get rid of ants. Oh dear. So last last couple of questions. So, like, um, I mean, I've, I've certain, certainly seen a couple of people mention it. I'm not really convinced about it, to be honest. But people talk about automation software. So, um, basically, when you plug a piece of code into your website, and then it, it takes recommendations, and then automatically alters the code in your website. So, say, um, you know, there's title tags that need changing and things like that. Um, what What are your thoughts on that? Ah, uh, I think. Or have you not? Have you not seen? Yeah, it? No, well, well, you know what? I really don't have any problem with programmatic solutions as long as they're not manipulative. Yeah. Uh, I think. I mean, ultimately, search engines are <laughs> search engines, and lo- all technology companies and lots of these big startups do things t- to adapt to queries. I mean, search engines change our page titles and meta descriptions to meet to meet a query better, yeah? If they think that the information on the page is uh, fitting. So they do it. There's no harm with... I'm a big advocate, actually, for finding scalable but ethical solutions, yeah? Because our lives are too short, yeah? Uh, And some of the biggest sites in the world are built using technology and smart solutions, yeah? And they do very well, yeah? It's when you're doing things that are is 
spamming, yeah. Web spam. Web spam's a challenge, yeah. There's a difference between, I mean, the laying off Glenn Gabe uh, the other day, who's another SEO, AI can rank as well. Content created using artificial intelligence can rank. If it's well, I mean, if it's well written enough and featured snippets using Google BERT, for instance, or an adaptation of the Google BERT is what is powering feature snippets. It's an extraction, machine learned extraction from a web page that's adjusted slightly to meet queries or answer a question. So I don't have any issue with that. I'd have to look at the software you're talking about. I'd be very careful of it because a lot of automation processes sometimes have unexpected results yeah. and they tend to do things that you don't realise they're doing until after the damage has been caused. And uh, I know, hence the reason I crawl rank and so forth, yeah. You think you're getting rid of one thing, but on a site that's like a database-driven site, you know, <laughs> you suddenly like to tank it by accident. So I've done that many times, but on my own stuff, yeah. So I would judge every piece of software critically, test it maybe on a very small scale, like a unit test, <laughs> never roll anything out big <laughs> unless, uh, unless you know it's going to produce the desired results, yeah? yeah. But there's no harm in automation. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, as long as it's so, not or spam. Yeah, so like, as long as it's not for manipulation, and you know, you use it for the right thing, and oh, on a spam. spam basis. As long as you're not creating spam, yeah. As long as you're not creating spam, manipulation, anything like that. Good. Yeah. Good. So I think we'll wrap up there. So, um, what have you got coming up? So, what 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 are you doing? Then are you working on any papers? And you said you've got a thirteen year. Uh, you've been working on a project for the past 13 years. Obviously, you can't say what it is at the moment, but... Uh, yeah. Well, I just don't... Yeah, I, I, I'm working with like, my developer on some stuff at the moment. I've also some of the clients that had to pause temporarily because of coronavirus come back, so I'm working with them. Some never went anyway, so I'm working with them on some some of their projects, kind of on an ongoing, ongoing basis. Uh, I'm just about to start some consultancy working with some in-house teams and helping them some brands in-house teams helping them to scale up um and kind of guiding them if you like and what else am i doing dogs you hear the dog there yeah Uh, i mean that's kind of enough to keep me busy for now so yeah i've got yeah a lot going on but at the same time yeah i'm i'm busy Got a lot of them. Um, so, where can people find you? So, if people want to get in touch with you, send you a message, um, listen to anything that you've done, uh, view anything that you've written, where can they, where can they find some of you, um, your writing, for example? Have you, um, is there any links? I've written stuff for Search Engine Land uh, and Search Engine Journal. I don't have enough time, unfortunately, to do more. So, uh, Smart Insights, I've written for them. As well, you can find me on my website, which is Bertie.com. I need to do more writing there as well. Uh, there is some stuff I've written over there as well, but I'm just again never enough hours in the day. And you can find me on LinkedIn at Ms. Dawn Anderson, you can find me on Twitter at Donnie Ando. Uh, 